I think at the same time, we also have to think about what the pandemic means for measured quality of care and value-based care models um, that really rely on quality measures, given that we know the pandemic has really impacted these measures. So I think a lot of adaptations are necessary to, to some of these programs going forward, as we know COVID's impacts on these measures probably will be felt for a long time. This is the Coleman Associate Innovation Podcast. Innovation? Yeah, innovation. New, original, and creative. This podcast is designed to challenge the way you think about how healthcare is delivered. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt. Welcome to the Coleman Associates Innovation Podcast, the podcast that brings innovations and best practices in healthcare to your podcasting app. I'm Adrian, your host, and today I'm excited for another edition of our Closing the Gap series about how we work to close health inequity. Today's guest is Dr. Megan Kolbrahim, who is the lead author of a study that came out that is all about COVID-19 vaccine administration in federally qualified health centers and how they impact race and ethnicity. Today, she's going to share with us what the study found and what the role of FQHCs was and um, what some of those implications are. So without further ado, Dr. Cole, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, happy to. So thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Megan Colbert-Heem. As you mentioned, I am faculty at the Boston University School of Public Health, where I also co-direct our Medicaid policy lab. And most of my work focuses on the impacts of Medicaid policy and care delivery models on low-income and minoritized populations, especially those served by FQHC. So excited to share some of our work today. Great. Can you tell us about the study and what you all found? Yeah, I'm happy to. So a bit of background, as I'm sure everybody is quite familiar with. So COVID-19 really inequitably affected minoritized, marginalized, and low-income populations. And these are populations who are disproportionately served by FQHC. Um, so for example, uh, lower income and racial and ethnic minoritized populations were experiencing and continue to experience higher um, case rates of COVID, higher rates of hospitalizations, and higher death rates. And at the same time, these are also populations that were least likely to have access to the COVID-19 vaccine. And this was particularly true at the beginning of the vaccine administration period, and it continues to be true today. So um, these are populations that are um, disproportionately served by FQHCs. And we know um, that FQHCs are really kind of well positioned to enable access to services, including vaccines and the 19 vaccines for these populations. So they're seen as trusted, accessible providers, and they've played a really important role historically in reducing disparities in access to care. So kind of given all that, myself and my study team kind of knew that FQHCs really had an important role to play in administering COVID-19 vaccinations to underserved communities, really the communities that needed vaccine the most. So with all of that, what, what we did was we used national data, so data on almost every single FQHC in the U.S. And we really had two specific, specific objectives. The first was to look at how COVID-19 vaccination administration rates across all U.S. FQHCs had been delivered according to the race and or ethnicity of the patients receiving the vaccine in order to kind of essentially quantify who the vaccines were reaching at FQHCs. 
And then we said, okay. And um, we also know FQH, we know FQHCs serve populations that are disproportionately non-white. So conditional on having, conditional on the populations, the racial and ethnic populations served by these FQHCs, what did equity look like in terms of who was actually getting the vaccine uh, within those FQHCs? So those are really our two objectives. And kind of the, the, the short kind of takeaway, what we found was that as of this study date, which was the middle of July of 2021, the majority of vaccines administered at QHCs, over 61%, had been administered to patients who identified as something other than white. And kind of the, the parallel statistic or the analogous statistic in the general U.S. population was about 40% of all vaccines had been administered to non-white patients. So vaccines um, at FQHCs were really kind of better reaching populations who's um, really stood to disproportionately benefit from receiving those vaccines. And then kind of the second big takeaway was that when we looked conditional on the populations that were served by the FQHCs, so in other words, when we looked at um, vaccine equity within the FQHCs, we saw a pretty equitable distribution across the different racial and ethnic groups. So for example, um, we saw statistical equity for American Indian, Alaskan Native, Hispanic, Asian, um, and white patients. By the end of our study period, we still saw some inequities um, amongst um, Black populations. However, when we look a, just a little bit further out by, I think, September of 2021, which was not included in the study, we do see that every single racial and ethnic group served by FQHCs on average was experiencing kind of statistical equity in receipt of vaccines, which we do not see in the U.S. general population. So kind of the big takeaway there is that um, FQHCs have really played an important and really really critical role in enabling equitable access to vaccines in, in these communities. Yeah, that's I, I'm sure that many of our FQHC folks who are listening in are excited to hear that because they can kind of feel themselves doing that work every day. I'm curious, what was your data set? Was it based off of UDS data or what was the data set that you used to find that nationalized data? Sure. So as, as you probably know, starting at the in the beginning of the pandemic, HRSA started to collect weekly, now bi-weekly survey data from all um, Section 330 uh, health centers. So in any given week, about 80% of FQHCs were reporting these data. They included data on challenges experienced during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then once vaccines started to roll out, um, they started collecting counts from every FQHC of who was getting vaccinated, stratified by race and ethnicity. So that was our main data source. We were able to look across FQHCs over time. Um, and we also merged in UDS data in order to compare who is getting the vaccines to the populations um, served by the FQHCs as indicated in the UDS data. Okay. Did you see a lot of variability? And it's okay if you don't know the answer to this. Did you see a lot of variability between different FQHCs? Yes. So I think, so I'll, I'll say um, because of the way that the data are reported, I think we have to be careful whenever we um, kind of dig a little bit deeper into subgroups. But yes, I think there was kind of vast heterogeneity across states, for example, when we looked at equity um, in, in vaccines. So some states had very equitable uh, distribution of vaccines, whereas we saw in some other states that that was not the case. And the vaccine distribution was much less equitable. 
we we see some differences in urban versus rural areas where urban areas tended to be a little bit more equitable. But I think we have to be a little bit cautious anytime we dig a little bit deeper into the data just because of um, the nature of the data and um, kind of we lose statistical significance when we um, look at smaller subgroups. But there was a lot of there were big differences when you kind of looked across different groups. Sure. Absolutely. Was there anything that surprised you about what you found? So I think on the whole, what we find is, is probably not surprising. The fact that FQHCs are, are reaching the populations that they serve is something that um, we would expect. Um, and the fact that they're doing so equitably is also not surprising. And, and to that to that end, I think it's just important that we're quantifying the impact. So we kind of put these, these data into the hands of policymakers and, and congressional leaders who are kind of making decisions about continuing to fund FQHCs and continuing to invest in them to support their capacity. I, I do think it was a little bit surprising, one, where where we really didn't see equity within the, the Black FQHC population until kind of after our study period ended. I think, it, you know, maybe it, it does mirror some of what we see in the national data. Um, I would have expected our, our numbers to be maybe um, equitable earlier on in the FQHC populations, but they were, you know, more equitable than what we what we otherwise see elsewhere. I think the second thing that was perhaps a little bit surprising was um, at the beginning, and, and maybe this isn't so much surprising, it, it kind of makes sense, but um, on the surface, we see um, in the very early periods, we have less equity. So for example, um, the Hispanic population was not equitably receiving uh, COVID-19 vaccines in the early months of vaccine administration. Um, and again, maybe that's a little surprising given what we know about FQHCs, but I think really what's driving that um, had nothing to do with FQHCs. It was really kind of those age-specific policies around the early rollout of the vaccines that often were state dictated, where states were deciding who really had early access to the vaccines. And that had all sorts of implications for equity, where um, older populations, largely due to higher levels of, of chronic uh, conditions and vulnerability, were, were more likely to have earlier access to the vaccines, which in turn led to certain younger racial and ethnic groups having less access early on. But, but we see those differences uh, lessen over time as, as the vaccines became available to everyone. That's really interesting because like for for us, like I hadn't thought about the, you know, there's differences in like which states, who states were prioritizing in terms of giving vaccines to, because kind of what we, the work that we do and that our listeners will be familiar is really thinking about access and how like a lot of times, specifically at the beginning of the vaccine rollout in FQHCs is figuring out how to take patients who want the vaccine and get them on the schedule to actually get a vaccine was very challenging. And so some sometimes there were some, we, we thought that there might be some inequity in terms of how different populations were able to get access to those appointments, even in FQHCs. So that's pretty interesting what you found. What do you think the implications are that you'd like to share about what you found? Yeah, so I think that that's a really important question and, and the, the question. I think kind of the big implication is that, you know, FQHCs have clearly played a really important role in providing equitable access to care, including vaccines, but not limited to vaccines during this period. Um, so it's really important that we continue to sustainably fund FQHCs, which includes federal investment that enables FQHCs to continue to staff and meet 
the ongoing demands that they're facing and will continue to face for a long time. So I think there's a lot of value to um, continuing to provide those grants directly to FQHCs to really expand their capacity. And we also know that their FQHCs kind of given given these testing and vaccine administration demands coupled with everything else that's been happening over the last few years, um, there's just a lot of staffing and capacity constraints generally. So really thinking about how do we invest in the workforce? How do we support the workforce um, with resources and and funding um, in order to make sure that they can continue to serve their patient populations? I think will be really important. Yeah. And specifically for the listeners, I just actually hopped off one of our Q&A calls that we have for our national cohorts and all three teams that were on there were talking about how they're losing staff right now. And so they're trying to figure out how to continue to test access improvements and making sure that patients are getting really awesome care. So I think uh, all of our FQHC folks feel that very viscerally. <laughs> Can you tell us about some of the other research that you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I mentioned, I I do a lot of work in the FQHC space and even in the context of of COVID-19 have a number of other areas where I'm focusing. Um, I I can tell you about a couple of examples. So for one, right now we're working with a network of FQHCs to understand the role of telehealth on access to care and equity of care during this COVID-19 period and and beyond, really. So through that work, we're working to evaluate how this equity-focused telehealth delivery model that's being implemented within FQHCs in Massachusetts has impacted quality of care and use of care for different clinical populations, including patients diabetes, patients with mental health needs, uh, patients with substance use disorder treatment needs, um, and kind of specifically looking at telehealth, how telehealth has differentially affected different racial and ethnic groups and different linguistic groups, where, as, as everybody probably knows, telehealth has a lot of potential to mitigate or potentially exacerbate disparities in care, depending on kind of the care delivery model that's used, where the specific model that uh, we're looking at in Massachusetts has really tried to bridge that digital divide and has used other 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 efforts, uh, outreach efforts, in order to engage patients in order in order to make sure they're able to actually access the technologies necessary to benefit from telehealth. Um, so kind of preliminary findings from that work have found that telehealth has improved some quality of care measures and has improved engagement in care with kind of some mixed findings across racial and ethnic groups, but that particularly Hispanic and Black populations and the survey data that we're seeing have actually reported really high levels of um, satisfaction with care and have indicated continued interest in continuing to use telehealth um, past kind of this pandemic period. That's one kind of group of projects that I'm working on now. Also doing some work that kind of looks more federally at the impact of the pandemic on FQHCs, where we've looked at the effect of COVID-19 on quality of care measures and on just utilization of services. So what we found there, probably not too surprisingly, is that in the during the first year of the pandemic, so in 2020, of the 12 different HEDIS measures that we looked at, 10 of the 12 experienced um, significant declines in measured quality in 2020, which really erased years of progress that we otherwise saw um, in those measured trajectories and represented millions of patients not receiving recommended services during this time. And we also see that um, visit rates 
changed quite a bit. So most types of visits went down as not particularly surprising during 2020, although visits for um, certain mental health and substance use diagnoses um, actually did increase during 2020 relative to prior years. So I think all of that said, there are important implications for continuing to meet care demands in 2021, 2022, and beyond, given that a lot of services were missed during this period. Um, that requires staffing, that requires investment in order to enable that capacity. And I think at the same time, we also have to think about what the pandemic means for measured quality of care and value-based care models um, that really rely on quality measures, given that we know the pandemic has really impacted these measures. So I think a lot of adaptations are necessary to, to some of these programs going forward, as um, we know covid impacts on these measures probably won't, will be felt for a long time. Two pieces of work. I'm happy to talk about more. No, very, very cool stuff. And like, I think the telehealth piece will be particularly interesting to our listeners. They'll probably remember one of the episodes that we did early in the pandemic where Ryan from our team was describing climbing up part of a uh, part of a telephone pole to put a router up in their parking lot so that everybody oh, wow. can telehealth those hits. We did it with, he did it with duct tape, I believe. <laughs> so uh, it's just kind of cool to hear you talk about the data and what it shows on a national picture, because I think a lot of our listeners have experiences that really line up with that, that makes it uh, is a very validating thing because people worked really hard through the pandemic and are continuing to do that to make sure that we're maintaining that equitable access. I think that's really important. And I think, I mean, there's kind of two pieces to it. So so one, you have a lot of these FQHCs that have really built up telehealth capacity during COVID-19 and, and kind of have developed the infrastructure and the workflows in order to make this part of their care delivery models. And I don't think we want to lose that traction. And at the same time, the reason that was possible is because we have a lot of payment policies in place that have reimbursed for telehealth and have done so in many cases that parity. I think there's a lot of questions about what that looks like going forward. So I think that's where some of this evidence will be helpful as we decide kind of how to reimburse, what to reimburse for, because without without the underlying reimbursement, um, kind of all of the investment that's been made across FQHCs um, could, could really kind of be, be lost if we're not otherwise um, supporting it through, through payment. Yeah, I think the question of if parity is going to continue is always a hot topic yeah. in the FQHC world. Yeah. <laughs> Something we think about a lot. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? This is preaching to the choir, but I think, you know, my the heart of my work is really trying to quantify value of FQHCs. And I think FQHCs are just doing such important work during times when this this work is couldn't be more important and timely. And I think there's just a lot to learn from the FQHC model. And um, it's I, I feel privileged to be able to do this work and to try to provide some of that evidence that can then be taken by policymakers, by Medicaid programs, by, by health systems in order to kind of validate what I think a lot of people probably already know. Five years ago, we, we had fewer states who had expanded Medicaid eligibility. And I think we're continuing to see um, states kind of push the needle on the state that we wouldn't have otherwise thought um, may have expanded eligibility, continue to do so. And I'm excited to, to keep looking at the impacts and hoping to try to try to quantify those as well as we look over the longer term and, and think about what this means um, for FQHC and their patients. Yeah. Just on a personal note, um, I live in Missouri, so, <laughs> so I'm I and I used to live in Chicago. So it's like it is night and day if you don't have Medicaid expansion. So absolutely. Yeah. So thanks to Dr. Kolbrahim for sharing her wisdom with us. Make sure that you like and subscribe to the Coleman Associates Innovation Podcast so that you never miss an episode. 
If you or someone you know should be interviewed for an episode, shoot us an email at notify at colemanassociates.com or reach out to us on social media. To keep up with all the Chispa happenings, follow us on LinkedIn. Shout out to Jonathan at Bionic Squid for all of his podcasting help, and we'll see you next time. Uh-huh.